Good morning. Many years ago, when I had less facial hair and fewer children, I was a high school pastor at a church in Pennsylvania, and we had a guy's event that we called Manapalooza, because of course we did. And it was, we, we tried to think of, oh, what's guy stuff we want to do? So we had, we had grilled meats, we had all these, I think we had go-karts, and we had an, a football player to come and share his story, and we also had this inflatable basketball bungee game thing. Um, and we're going to show you a picture so you can see what it looks like. A lot like this. You're tethered in the middle to someone else. You're trying to score on opposite ends of the, of the inflatable score in your, in your basket. And we made a little competition here. And our speaker was a former all-league defensive tackle for Colgate. Really good guy. 6'3", 241 pounds. And he was invited to an NFL training camp. I believe he played arena league football. Um, so this guy is a legit football player, a legit athlete. And even now, he's still a really young guy. But after his career he was done playing. I mean, he's, he looked like he could have gone out and played that day in loafers. I mean, he was just, he was jacked. This guy was just in great shape. And a student challenges him to this game. And he's a good sport. So he's like, sure, you know, I, I'm happy to do that. Let's be honest. He's supremely confident how this is going to go. He's got nothing to prove. He's twice this student's size. I mean, his, his athletic bona fides have been established. He's got nothing to prove here. So he steps in, and they get inside. The, they each kind of, kind of get inside their harnesses, and they start going, and the student kind of runs out as fast as he can because the football player, I mean, he's not going to be mean about it. He's not there to, like, embarrass the kid. So it's one of those, like, oh, you know, here I go. I'm going. Kid tries to run out, tries to get as far as he can, and then just gradually the football player starts taking over. He just starts pulling him towards his goal because he's just a lot bigger. He's a lot stronger. And the kid in desperation throws his ball at the goal and it goes in. And so he scored the first point. Now, the player has nothing to prove here. He has nothing to prove. But every so often, the big dog feels the need to remind others that he is, in fact, the big dog. And so Alex didn't say anything, but I think I could see it in his eyes where he's like, yeah, that's not happening again. And so they get up for the next two rounds, and the next two rounds went like this. Boom! Boom! Just, just steamrolled this kid. He just steamrolled this kid. He was so much more powerful than, than, than this kid was. He didn't need to prove himself. He didn't have to, but when he decided to do it, he was going to show up in a big way, in a powerful way. As we wrap up our series on Extraordinary, looking at our, the life of Elisha, we're going to look today at a story where God's power and God's presence show up in a real and a tangible way, where God does much what Alex does, where God doesn't need to prove himself, but when he does, when he decides to, he shows up in a powerful way. We're going to look at 2 Kings chapter 6, 2 Kings chapter 6. If you've got your Bible, you can turn there. We're going to start at verse 8. So a couple things that I need to let you know about up front. A little bit of background just so that we're on the same page here, all right? Elisha is in the northern kingdom called Israel. There is an enemy to the north, and they're the Arameans, all right? So if you're ever on Jeopardy and Bible comes up, now you'll know the kingdom of Aram was the, to the north. So there's been these ongoing border skirmishes between these two kingdoms, and it's threatening to escalate into full-scale war. We've seen evidence of this conflict other places in 2 Kings. So 
the king of Aram wants to capture the king of Israel. He wants to, he wants to win. And they know the king of Israel is going out on these different raids, so they set up ambushes for him. That's, that's the plan. If we can capture him, if we can stage these strategic raids, we can, you know, make a dent in the forces of Israel. So he says, all right, let's make our plan. But what happened was, is that Elisha would warn the king of Israel where the ambushes were set up. Because God was giving him inside information. God was revealing that to Elisha, and Elisha was sharing that with the Israelites. So every time the Arameans set up an ambush, the Israelites managed to avoid it, which has got to be seriously frustrating if you're trying to ambush somebody. And the king has had it. He has had it. I mean, he wants to know what's going on. He is incredibly upset. He gathers his officers, and he goes, I want to know who's the traitor. Who's who's given inside information? I want to know which one of you is a traitor. And what what did he expect was going to happen? Oh, that's me, sir. Sorry that we're not supposed to do that. My fault. No, no nobody says that's me. In fact, what they say was, we, we, we actually know how the king is finding this out. And it's not from us. We know that Elisha is sharing with the king of Israel these plans. In fact, it says, tell, he, Elisha tells the king, even the words you speak in the privacy of your bedroom which is terrifying. Like if you're not sitting here thinking like, oh my goodness, that would be awful. You're lying to you and me. So the king goes, we need to do something about this right now. And he goes, where is this guy? How do we figure this out? And his staff goes, well, we know where he is. He's in Dothan right now. And here's what I want to know. How, how did the king miss all of this stuff? How does everybody else know who the guy is, what he's been doing, how he knows the information and where he is right now? Two thumbs down for the king. He's not doing a good job. So he says, let's, let's go get him. I want you to send a, a large force, send a large army to go, to go get him. In fact, send them at night so they won't, Elisha won't know that they're coming. Here's what I find fascinating about that. Number one, it's one guy. You're going to send a large army? The king is what we call overcompensating. In his embarrassment, he's like, you send Everybody. He says, send horses and chariots and troops. Chariots are are the tanks of this age. It's like, send send an entire naval fleet and the Air Force and the Marines, and I want 150 tanks because there's one guy in Edinburgh, and we got to get him. (laughs) It's overkill. It's overkill. The other thing I love is he says, send him at night so he, he won't know they're coming. And I find that fascinating because the king has recently learned two things about Elisha. He now knows two things. And one of those things is, he knows the plans that you keep making. He's not standing outside the gate going, oh, look, there they go, they're leaving. He already knows. Night is going to help that? So this force is sent in the cover of night, and the next morning, Elisha's servant wakes up, and he walks outside to get whatever you'd get in the morning. I don't know the middle bronze age version of the newspaper or milk or whatever that was. He walks outside. And if you're, I don't know if he's anything like me. I don't know if you're, any morning people here? Any, any of your morning people? You sicken me. <laughs> it takes, I feel like it takes me a good half an hour to like turn my brain on in the morning. Like if this, if I'm the servant, I'm walking outside like, am I wearing pants? Good. All right. I got pants on. What time is it? And the servant looks up and he sees that they are surrounded by this army and he loses it. Imagine that. He's out. He's looking around. And he's like, oh, man, I am so tired. I wonder what we have to do. Oh, my goodness gracious. He, it says he, he yells. He cries out. 
What are we going to do? He's afraid. He's very, very afraid. Fear leads to failure. Fear leads to failure. Fear is a powerful motivator. We know that's true. Fear is it's a primal instinct. It's a survival reflex. Fear is something that triggers in us to keep us safe. We see that in animals all the time. I love watching planet Earth. And we see that in, in, in like, watch any, you watch any animal behavior, inevitably one of them is going to be terrified of the other one because the other one wants to eat it. So fear in and of itself is a response that's not necessarily bad, but what happens to fear when we give into that, when it builds, when it, when it grows, is that it can consume us. Fear makes us uncomfortable, and as it grows, it can be paralyzing. Fear leads us into making bad decisions. If you need proof of that, think back to your school days. Every bad outfit you wore, every bad haircut you got was in some way related to fear. What will Susie say if my jeans don't look like hers? Because I think we all know how Susie can be. Fear is really the root of peer pressure. We're afraid of being left out, of not fitting in, of not belonging. And that can lead us to make bad decisions. And the servant's fear here was a problem. The servant's fear of his surroundings shaped his view of God. The servant's fear of his surroundings shaped his view of God. Now servant, the word servant that's used here is the same word that was used to describe the relationship between Elisha and Elijah. And we talked about that when we started this series a couple weeks ago. And the implication of that is this isn't some, merely some mindless gopher. This isn't a slave that's working for Elisha. This is in some way a partner that, that the servant has seen Elisha do incredible things. He's seen God use Elisha to do that. He's seen what God is at, how God is at work in this people, in this area at this time. He's seen that stuff. And yet, his fear overwhelms him. It overwhelms him. He can't see anything except his present reality and his fear of it. And it's overwhelming. That fear overshadowed everything else. And here's the thing, I get that. I do, I understand feeling like that. Sometimes we look around and everything just seems so overwhelming. It just does. We don't know what to do. We don't know which end is up. On a very small scale, my family this week all got like violently ill. My son got a little bit better, but my wife and my two girls got violent. Like I've never seen them sicker. It was crazy. It got so bad at one point, I had to, for the first time in my adult life, call my mother and say, Mom, I need your help. <laughs> I can get it. It's, just, it's overwhelming. What do you do with that? Fear is a response, but when we give in to fear, when we allow it to grow, it can be paralyzing. It can overwhelm us. And it looks different for each of us. Maybe for you, it's fear of losing a relationship. Maybe it's fear of losing a job. Maybe it's fear of being unloved. Maybe it's fear of not having enough or not being able to provide. Maybe it's fear of not being good enough. Maybe it's fear 
of if only people knew what I was really like, what would they think? We all fear something. We all fear something. And as we surrender to it and as we give into it, it can build up and take over and cover and block out everything else. Everything else. I read a great quote this week that really spoke to this. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt said, Courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the assessment that something else is more important than fear. And what we see in this story is that's, that's what's true for Elisha. He's able to show courage because something else is more important to him. Because as we continue this story, Elisha responds to his servant and he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And if I'm the servant, my response is something like, oh, that's awesome. Super helpful. Thank you. I didn't realize that's all I had to do. That was such a good answer. Woo, that was it. Don't be afraid. Done. What's next? You didn't fix anything. And he goes on to say, Elisha goes on to say this in verse 16. For there are more on our side than there are on theirs. Or I love how it says it in the ESV. Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And again, this raises questions because the servant's got to be going, listen, I may not have been the best at math, but let me do a little quick calculation here. One, two, one, two, three, four. Okay, there's already more. There's a lot more of them than there are of us. Also, they're all soldiers. They have chariots. We have nothing. What are, you, what are you talking about? Like, what a crazy thing to say to them. They're more with us than there are with them? And so what Elisha does, he doesn't chastise them. He doesn't yell at them. He doesn't get angry with them. He's, instead, he prays. He says, oh, Lord, open his eyes and let him see. Open his eyes and let him see. And so God opens his eyes. And when he looks up, he sees that the hillside surrounding the army of the Arameans was filled with horses and chariots. And they were on fire. I don't think you heard me. They were on fire. What's the only thing better than your backup shows up? When your backup's on fire. You want to be intimidating? Be on fire. Like, imagine you look up and you're like, okay, all right, that's got to be the quickest 180 in history where the servant's like, we are in so much trouble. What are we going to do? I can't believe it. That's right. That's what's up. You're all in big trouble now. <laughs> and this army starts to come in and Elisha prays again that they would be struck blind and God does that. He strikes them blind and they approach. And Elisha says to them, you've come the wrong way. This isn't the right city. Follow me and I'll take you to the man you're looking for. And as I read this this week, as I thought about this, I thought, that sounds really familiar. Why does that sound, why does it sound familiar? I'm a big Star Wars fan. Any Star Wars fans? Jedis have to be the coolest kind of pseudo superhero in all of fiction. And Jedis have this thing where they can kind of manipulate your mind and convince people to do things they don't necessarily want to do. And let me give you an example of that. These aren't the droids you're looking for. These aren't the droids we're looking for. He can go about his business. You can go about your business. Move along. Move along. This is not the town you are looking for. I will take you to the man. Like, that's so, that's crazy. So he leads them into the capital city of Samaria, where they're surrounded. 
this is their enemy's stronghold. Elisha leads them in there and prays that their eyes would be opened, and they are, and they realize they're surrounded. And the king of Israel is, is so excited at an opportunity to strike a blow against his enemies, he freaks out and he's like, he's like, my father, should I kill them? Should I kill them? And that's not a mistake. In his zeal, and his enthusiasm, he doesn't even frame this thought well. He says it twice because he wants to make it happen. And Elisha says, no. No. In fact, bring them food. Bring them a feast and send them on their way. Elisha could have taken matters into his own hands and, and fought back against his enemies and he didn't. He said, feed them and send them on their way. Because for Elisha, faith leads to victory. Faith leads to victory. Elisha's understanding of God shaped his view of his surroundings. Where the servant's view of his surroundings shaped his view of God, Elisha's view of God shaped his surroundings. Elisha knew God is still in control. God is still who he says he is. God is still at work. I don't need to see God at work to know he's at work. The God that was in charge and is powerful yesterday is the same God who will be today and tomorrow. That God is still on the throne. That God is still king and I can trust in that. That just because I don't see it doesn't mean it's not true. Elisha's understanding of God shaped his view of his surroundings. He showed great confidence when the physical reality didn't seem to give him any reason to. And I love that what he simply did is he prayed that God would open his servant's eyes so he could see. See what exactly? He didn't say. He said, see. And I think God showed the servant whatever he needed to see to show him that God's presence and God's power were there regardless of whether or not he understood it. What the servant got a view into is the war going on behind the scenes between good and evil that God has fought and already won for us. We get a chance to see behind the curtain that God has already won, that this is God's army, that this is God's force, that it vastly outnumbers their enemies. And that again, it's worth noting they were on fire, which is just awesome. Imagine how this must have affected the servant. This is a radically life-changing moment. Radically life-changing moment. I love that the army didn't even have to do anything. That simply their presence there, standing there and looking awesome, changed everything for the servants. It was a picture of God's power and how he is present in our reality. Elisha's confidence was rooted in something deeper than what he saw. Elisha's confidence was rooted in in who he knew God to be, in who he knew God to be. He was rock solid in that, rock solid, rooted in who he knew God to be. And knowing the ending, knowing that you win in the end, I mean, that, that changes everything, right? Having that kind of inside information makes winning a lot easier, makes everything different. When I was in college, uh, I studied in Israel for a year, and a couple friends from the Midwest, because I lived at the East Coast at the time, taught me the game Euchre. I'd never played Euchre before. So they taught me Euchre. If you've never heard of Euchre, it's a card game that you play in pairs, like in teams. It's two of you versus another two. Sit across the table, and you try and play together. And I remember one particular game. We played one afternoon, and we just destroyed, destroyed the, the pair that we were playing against. Like, 
if they ever played again, I would be surprised. Like every move was spot on and I'd play a card and he'd know to hold and then he'd play a card at the right time. It was incredible. We dominated. It wasn't even close. And I said to my friend at the end, I was like, that was amazing. I can't believe we did that well. He's like, well, I could see all your cards and your sunglasses. (laughs) Winning is a lot easier when you have that kind of inside information. And that's exactly what Elisha knows here. He goes, I know what happens and I can be faithful. I can endure because I know the end result. It's easier for me to endure that stuff. What can sometimes seem like this superhero-like heroism in, in people in the Bible or even people we know in our lives is really just knowledge and confidence in God and who he is. It's that simple. It's that simple. Hebrews 11.1 says it like this, describes faith this way. It says, faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It's the evidence of things we cannot see. It's the, rea- it's the assurance of what's coming. We know what's there. I can't see it now, but I know it's coming. It's exactly what we see Elisha do in this story. I know that God is powerful. I don't have to see it to know it's true. Elisha's faith allowed him to know that God was his protector, that he didn't have to defend himself. It allowed him to show courage instead of caving into fear. It allowed him to show mercy to his enemies instead of seeking revenge. Because be honest, if that was you, that was me, and we could end a threat to our lives right here and right now, wouldn't we do that? Wouldn't we be tempted to take matters into our own hands? But Elisha says, no, the battle's not mine, it's God's, and I trust him. And he shows mercy. And if we're honest, we have a hard time with this kind of stuff. We have a hard time with this idea. It's the influence of modernity and post-modernity and reason, the idea that we want to know everything, that I need to have these dots connected, that I'll believe it if I can see it with my own eyes and I can touch it with my own hands. How many of you have heard people say that to you? I'll believe it if I can see it. How many of you in your own hearts have said that at some time? Yeah, I, I, God's good. I get that whole thing. Uh, I'll, but I'll believe it when I really see it. The reality for us, though, is we often believe in things we can't see. We do it all the time. We do it every day. Think about different things like gravity or heat or wind, all these things that we don't see the thing, but we see the effect that the thing has on all their stuff. I, I've never seen the principle of lift work on an airplane, but I know it does. I'm not asking American Airlines for proof of concept before I board. (laughs) How about germs? I can't see germs, but I can absolutely tell you the effect they've had on my family this week. (laughs) We have faith all the time in those sorts of things. And folks, the power and the presence of God in our lives is not related in any way to our ability to see them. God does not need us to acknowledge him as all-powerful in order to be all-powerful. Folks, God is all-powerful. He just is. And we get to have access to that and be on his team or we can ignore it, but it just is true. It just is. And that's what we can have confidence in and rest in and find ourselves in. And that power is shown in his movement towards us. God seeks us out. Because like the servant in the story, we are spiritually blind on our own. We like to believe a narrative that 
our journey with God is about me seeking him out, me looking to find him. But the reality is we are sprinting away from God as fast as we can and God chases us down and brings us to himself. God does not ask you to fix yourself and come to him. God says, I will fix you. I will find you. I will seek you. I will save you. I will change you. God shows his power by doing that for us. Just like Elisha intercedes for the servants, so Jesus intercedes for us, giving us sight to see who God is and what he's done for us. Jesus opens our eyes to the reality of who God is, who he has been, and who we will be, and how he's been part of the story the whole time. He never left. God's victory has been won. He holds sway over eternity. He showed the way that he is at work in our world in ways that we can't see. We see God's heart for people here, for average, everyday, regular people. We see God's heart for enemies. We see God's heart for foreigners. We see God's heart for people that mercy is shown when it does not have to be. Faith overcomes fear. Faith overcomes fear. When what we know, all right, when what we know is true, overcomes what we feel in the moment, faith overcomes fear. Now, this is the part where you might expect me to say something like, faith cures everything. Faith solves all. Faith makes everything better right here and right now. And I would love to tell you that, and I would love for that to be true. But that's not the case. That's not why faith matters. It's our confidence in the future that Jesus has secured for us that allows us to have faith in in our present. I don't have faith because I know how the next 15 minutes are going to turn out or the next month or the next year. I have faith because I know how eternity will turn out. But that doesn't mean that God is unconcerned with the present. It's a both and. There is both the hope that God might and God could affect and bring change in our present circumstances and the absolute assurance that he will one day. We can ask for that now. We should ask for that now. And God does move in those things, but we can look forward to even when he doesn't to the day that he will. And you need that hope and I need that hope because if we're going through something and we don't feel like God's answering or we don't feel like God's doing anything, if, if God's power is fully dependent on what he's doing for me in the moment, then we might say he's not powerful, but if God's power is present by the future he's secured, then I can make it through the difficult present. It's possible. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. People endure difficult things Even saying out loud, I know my God can save me from this, but even if he doesn't, he is still powerful. I don't know what tomorrow holds, but my faith is in the God who does. That's who I look to. My grandmother is a big influence on my life. She grew up in the South, grew up in Texas, shaped by the Depression. Love this woman. And as all of us do, she had her, her thing. She had her issues. She could be tough. And there's ways that was great. If you were on grandma's team, grandma would go to war for you. If I was talking to her about things and 
somebody was giving me a hard time, she'd say, do I need to come talk to them? And she was not kidding. Like if she would have seen someone, she'd have been like, listen, you. Like she would have done it. There was always like, like a love grandma, but there was like a little bit where it's like, we're cool, right? <laughs> and a couple years ago, she got an aggressive form of cancer. And in one of the most formative experiences of my life, I watched her live out her faith. Because in the midst of incredible pain, all those rough edges were burned away and what was left was the best of her. I'm so grateful that my wife got to know her during this time because I watched my grandmother say, I'm in, I'm in pain today and I will be in pain tomorrow and I will be in pain the next day, but I know what my future holds. I know what my forever is. I can look fear in the eye and say, you're not in control because I know what my forever is. I know that my hope is in Jesus and I look forward to the day when I will be healed fully, restored fully in heaven. That this pain, this cancer is temporary. It's a powerful picture. Her faith overcame her fear. And that's important because faith's easy to talk about when we're, when we're at church, when things are good, when we're around other Christians, but it's harder and yet even more necessary in the crucible of everyday life. We don't need faith less when it's hard. We need it more because it reminds us of what's true when, it, when truth doesn't feel true. We can look to a greater hope. I want to leave you with a couple of thoughts, a couple of questions for you to ask yourself, a couple of things to think about. First is, what's your fiery army? Where is God showing his power and his presence in your life right now? Where is God showing up in ways that you don't see? Maybe it's a friend reaching out to you. Maybe it's the fact that you're here this morning and you're not even really sure why. Maybe it's a quiet knock on your heart. What's your fiery army? Where's God showing up in your life? How can you pray this week that God would open your eyes to see that? I want to challenge you. Start every day in a, in a small moment of prayer. Ask God, to help you see the world, to see people, to see your life the way he sees it and not the way you see it. Ask him like Elisha asked for a servant for your eyes to be opened. Where has fear been holding you back? Where has fear been holding you back? Where have you surrendered to fear, given into it and allowed it to grow and take over? to cloud out other things? Where has fear been holding you back? Maybe there's a conversation that you need to have that you've been avoiding. Maybe there's a bad relationship that you need to get out of. Maybe you need to make a change and taking the first step scares the living daylights out of you. Maybe you need to deal with hurt in your past. Samantha's story was powerful to hear this morning because she's an example of that. That fear is powerful, but moving towards healing is infinitely better.